Good morning, church. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to ask you to take it and open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And while you're doing that, I know we're doing a lot of praying right now, but uh, pray, Drew's praying, Rick's praying, but man, I just don't want to stop talking to God real quick. So can we just pray before we, as you open to 1 Peter, I'll, uh, I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you so much for your grace and your love. Dear God, that finds us where we are, God, but doesn't leave us where we are, God. And Lord, I just, as I sing that song, as the sun was lifted up, dear God, that's the motivation for everything, God. Lord, I pray today that you would change hearts and lives, dear Lord, by your, by your word, by your truth, by your standard, dear God, as we dive into it, dear God, I pray, God, that you would work in a way that only you can, Father God. And Lord, I just pray that, uh, dear Lord, over the next uh, few minutes, we would focus entirely on you, put everything else out of our minds, and dear God, just have your way in us, Father God. And I just pray that, and I pray that you would be glorified here today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as you open the Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, today's a pretty big day for us. It's the first start, it's the, technically the start of a new year for us as we're starting our, our first time in a new series. And uh, throughout this next couple months, and this, our next couple weeks, I should say, in this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be walking through the book of 1 Peter. And can I just tell y'all, I am beyond jacked up to walk through this book of the Bible. I mean, I, you can ask Jeremy, you can ask, I mean, I've just been just chomping at the bits for us to walk through First Peter together. And I'm excited for two reasons, all right? Uh, the first reason I'm excited is because I don't know if all of you are in a connect group, but if you're not, our connect groups are walking through this book of the Bible together, all right? And so what I want to do is I want to just, uh, all the connect groups in the church are walking through the same Bible. So it doesn't matter if you've never been before, now's a good time for you to jump in and I just want to encourage you right now to do that. If you've never been, you're kind of thinking about Connect Group, now is the time to, uh, to jump in, right? I just want to encourage you with this. Connect Groups are the most important ministry at Connection Church. And I say that because Connect Groups are the place where, uh, where we, we urge people through God's Word and through prayer and through fellowship and through uh, love and through confrontation of sin. We like to say, grow in your relationship with Christ is the most important uh, ministry. And I, I'll just say this to you. We've been doing connect groups for a year now, right? And if you're serious about growing in a relationship with God, I would urge you to get into a connect group because one of two things always happen when people get into a connect group. One, you come for a little bit and you decide, wow, this is really serious and you stop going. Or number two, God changes you. Because when you get surrounded by people who are pushing after God hard, that's just what happens. We're all spurring one another on. We're all looking to the cross saying, be more like Jesus. Be more like Jesus. And that's just what happens. So I just want to encourage you as we walk through First Peter, make this opportunity at the end of the service. Go to a connect group meet and greet and, and, and let's, let's get you plugged in. Another reason I'm excited about first Peter reaching through First Peter is that it just, as I read First Peter, it seems like the most appropriate book that we can read in the, based on where our society looks like it's heading right now, okay? So what I mean by that is this book, if we open our hearts when we read it, it has the potential to let us hear from God and it'll refocus our hearts and our mind on how great God is and just how we should be living every day. So as you, as you go through this book with us, as you're in a connect group with us, I want to ask you, open your heart and read this book of the Bible and let God change you. Let God transform you. So uh, as you can tell, I told you, I'm jacked up about 1 Peter. I hope that six weeks from now when we're done reading 1 Peter, I hope you're just as excited. 
excited about it, all right? It's, it's go- I really believe God's going to do some great things. So as we dive in, let me give you a little context of what we're doing. One of the major reasons that this book is so appropriate for why we should be studying it right now is that Peter's writing to a group of people who are in the midst of some serious suffering, right? They're being persecuted. They're being uh, pre- hard-pressed on every side. And Peter writes to these people. And what he does is he doesn't pray that their situation would change. Peter writes and reminds them, guess what, guys? As Christians, this world is always going to be hard for us because we live in this world as exiles. We, you can see it right there in that, in that, uh, that first verse. He's writing to exiles. So your, your Bible verse might translate it aliens. An exile or alien, that's somebody who is living in another country or another place and cannot return to their home country, right? Is everybody tracking with that? As I was thinking about this, my mind immediately went to uh, the Syrian exiles and Syrian refugees right now who have been displaced from their home because of the the, uh, Syrian civil war, right? So if you don't know, if you don't ever turn on the news, basically what's happening is everybody in Syria hates each other and there are two groups who are trying to kill each other and the good people are caught in the middle, right? And so what do these good people do? They, they leave. They have to go. And I was reading the story the other day of a guy named Faiz. Faiz is 29 years old. And uh, he, he was going to work in Syria in the, when the midst of this civil war was going on. And he was going to work one day. And in the middle of nowhere, the Syrian government comes to him and they throw him in jail and they threaten his family. Miraculously, the guy gets out, right? So he goes home. He tells his wife, we're leaving today. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but that'll kind of motivate you to pack your bags and, like, check on out, right? So he tells his wife, we're going to leave. We're getting out of here. So they leave. They get out of there, and they come to, they come to America. They come to Dallas, Texas. And Syria Fayez was a well-to-do man. He had a good job in the healthcare industry. He was making a living, making a, making a good uh, reputation and name for himself. But he says when he got to America, it's like he hit the reset button. He, find, he, he managed to find work at the local Walmart on a night shift stocking shelves. And him and his wife are struggling to learn English just so they can make it in society. But yet when you go to their home, I thought this was pretty cool. When you go to their home, what you see are decorations and relics of the home they just left. See, because they're exiles. They, they're longing to get back. They so badly, they, they want to get back home. Can you imagine how hard that would be for me and you? What if we just got took up out of this room today and we were on the run, we had to leave and we, we didn't have time to take anything with us, but we go to another place where we're surrounded by strange people speaking a strange language who, also, who don't, we don't know how to live among them. Can you imagine how hard that would be for me and you? It'd be, it'd be terrible, it'd be horrible. But as crazy as it sounds, that's the word that Peter uses to describe Christians. This morning. He calls us exiles. He calls us aliens. Get this. As Christians, here's the thing we've got to realize as we start out in this book of the Bible. Our citizenship is not of any earthly kingdom. If we are really true, born-again Christians, our citizenship is with the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and that means that I love Jesus and I love God more than I love anything here on this earth or any country here on this earth. That's just the way, that's what the Bible says. We're to be people who look different. We're to be people who talk different, think different, and live different than the world around us. And we're to do that because this world is not our home, right? We're exiles, we're aliens. So Peter is writing this to remind these Christians that the world's always going to be hard because we're not meant for this world. 
So that's the context as we dive in here to First Peter. If you got your Bible, I want you to, to start. I want you to read through this. We're going to read a big chunk of text, but I want us to read through it because what Peter's about to do is he's about to lay out for us what life as an exile should look like. And I just want to warn you, I've been reading this, this book for about three months now, First Peter, over and over again. And this is, going, this is some hard stuff, right? This is weighty stuff. So what does Peter say a life as an exile should look like? Let's read it together. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, got in my mind. Turn it down just a little bit. More precious than gold may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's skip just a little bit here. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is important, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call upon him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So that's a, that's a lot of text this morning. Listen, I want us to do something. Peter's writing to a group of people who he's saying, you are aliens, you don't belong. Now, the best thing that Peter can do for us is he could tell us what our life should look like if we don't belong. So I don't belong here, Peter. What do I need to look like, right? That's what he's about to do. He's about to show us the life of exile. So there's a few things I want you to see about the life of exile. First thing I want you guys to see this morning about the life of an exile is the identity of an exile. Anybody ever been pulled over and asked for identification, right? You don't say no, do you? You pull it out your pocket, right? The identity of exile. Look at verses 1 through 5, all right? Check this out. The very first thing Peter does, he shows up, he shows us who we are as exiles. And listen to this. He's going to tell us this. An exile is a person chosen by God and born again to a living hope from God. Let me show you what I mean. So verse 1 right here. Look at verse 1. It says, to those who are elect exiles of this person. Does anybody know what that word elect means? It means chosen right? When you elect something, you choose something. Did anybody vote, for it, vote in the last election? Right? We elected someone. We chose a president. We didn't have a lot to choose from this year, right? 
Now, that was a joke. Y'all can laugh. We ain't going to talk politics, all right? We didn't have a lot to choose from, but guess what, guys? We all got together, and we elected a president, right? We chose a president. And what's Peter saying here? Peter's saying that we are God's chosen people. Let me tell you something this morning. If you are a Christian, you are not just anybody. You are God's chosen, chosen people. That means before the foundation of the world, uh, Ephesians says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, before the world began, God looked into time and he saw us. He saw us as sinners. He saw all our mistakes and he chose us. Let me tell you something. That's grace this morning, folks. You, you know what you deserve, did to deserve choosing? You wasn't born yet, nothing, right? God looked at you, he looked in time, and he chose you. Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian this morning, it's crucial that you know that you are chosen by God. It's not just something in, this, in the Bible. It's who you are. It's an identity. Like when, you, when somebody asks me who I am, you know what the question they soon follows soon follow is? Who's your mom and daddy, Right? Because they want to know whose I am, not just who I am. You need to know whose you are this morning. Some of you right here this morning, you live your whole life, all right? You live your whole life, and you never feel like you have a real love relationship with Jesus Christ. Like you do the duty, you come to church, you say your prayers, you read your Bible, but you never feel like you're really loved by God. You murmur, I just, I'm struggling in my faith. I just don't feel God. Let me ask you something. The Bible says that God chose you. Do you not realize that you are chosen by God? That puts love inside of us. I just want you, I want you to, I want you to contemplate with me for just a second. Like clear your mind, clear your mind. Like, Imagine the God of the universe, right? He, he's a big God, a mighty God, a holy God. He's never sinned. He punishes sin, as a matter of fact, and he looks at sinners and he chooses us. Guys, we should feel the weight of that. And Peter starts off his letter like this. Peter could have started this letter any way he wanted to. He starts it with God choosing us. Why does, why does Peter do that? Why does he start when writing to a bunch of exiles saying that you're chosen? I think Peter starts it with election because Peter knows we can never live as Christians. We can never live as true exiles who are rejected by the world until he realizes we are chosen by God. Let me tell you something. You'll never be able to have the, the strength to live a holy life, to live a pure life, until you stop and realize that I don't care. It don't matter what anybody else says about me. I don't care who rejects me. I'm chosen by God. That's why Peter starts here. Listen, there's no rejection that can harm us when we realize we are loved by God. You feel like you've been stung by the world. You feel like you've been pushed away by the world. If you, you might be a woman here this morning. You feel like you've been pushed away by a man. You might be a man, feel like you've been pushed away by a woman. You might be a child, feel like you've been pushed away by a parent. Listen, there is no rejection that can have eternal consequence on us when we realize that we have been chosen by a God and Father who set his love on us before he was even born. So he says we're chosen. Yes, he also says that we're born again. Born again. Look at verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So he tells us we're chosen. Then Peter tells us we're born again. When somebody says born again in the Bible, they're talking about our salvation. 
All right. So they're talking about salvation. I love when the Bible is talking about salvation, and it doesn't. Use, I love when the Bible talks about salvation. And it uses the word "born again" as opposed to anything else, because we live in a day and age where everybody thinks that salvation is coming to church, or even attending a connect group, or even saying a prayer, checking a box, walking an aisle. But guess what? The Bible don't let us off that easy. Because the Bible has one definition for being saved, and it is somebody who has been born again of God. So that means that we are made new. In other words, when God saves us, he does something so deep down inside of our heart. He does something so deep to our desires and our our wants and our, our, our actions that it's almost like we're made new. Like we're born again. Ezekiel 36, 26. This is the Old Testament for you. I'm going to go Old Testament on y'all. Is that all right? Y'all read both parts of the Bible? Ezekiel 36, 26, it says this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and heart of flesh. Let me, get, let me tell you something. Being born again is not just making a decision. It's the work of God in you that takes a dirty heart, that takes a corrupted, sinful spirit, and it replaces it with a, a spirit that is an alive and forgiven spirit. It's a heart that's made new. Listen, what, I, what, I, what, I'm saying, what I'm talking about being born again, when I'm talking about your identities in exile, I'm not asking you if you've, ever, if you've been coming to church for over a year. What I'm not asking you is if you've ever made a decision to follow Christ. Let me tell you something. Some of y'all have made decisions to follow Christ every Sunday since we've been having church. Y'all come to church, and Jeremy tells y'all, we need, to make, we need to follow Christ. We need to be living our lives for Christ. And y'all know what y'all do? You know what? Jeremy's right. I need, I need to follow Christ, boy. Whew. Right? I'm not asking you whether you've made a decision to follow Christ. I'm asking you whether God has ever worked so deep inside your heart that it's changed who you are, that when you wake up in the morning, your desire is to follow Christ. Because when that happens, let me tell you something. You'll be able to come up to Jeremy and say, you're right, man, we need to be following Christ. So not only are we born again, Peter tells us how we're born again. So Peter don't, even, don't just tell us who we are. He tells us how we get to be who we are, right? Look at verse 3. He says, according to what? His great mercy. Get this. You are saved. And I want to make this explicitly clear this morning, all right? When someone asks you how you were saved, your answer should not be, well, I go to church. Well, I said a prayer. Well, I did this. Well, I did that. If that's how you answer that question, uh, but let me just go ahead and tell you, I don't care what's coming after I. You ain't made the right, you ain't, your answer's wrong. Because salvation don't start with you. you listen, God, God, we deserved wrath from God. God looked down on us and we deserved wrath and punishment and separation. But we are saved, why? By God's great mercy. It's, it's pure mercy. It's pure mercy that God looks at somebody like me and says, Dallas, I'm going to give you new life. I didn't do anything. God did it. And then he says, listen, he says we're chosen, we're born again, and we have a living hope. Look at, verse, look at verse 4 right there. He says we're born again to a living hope. And he says it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Listen, think about this with me. In Christ, in this world, I have a hope that will never die in Christ. But let me, let me, let's talk about how hope outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, there is not a hope in this world that's going to sustain me. There is not a hope in this world that's going to satisfy me. But in Christ, I have a hope that will never die, it will never fade, and it will never grow old. 
I have that hope because in verse 3, look what it says. He says, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ died on a cross. And then three days later, the place where they put his dead body wasn't there, and Jesus was up eating fish. Y'all ever, y'all ever heard that story? He dies, he goes up on the beach, and he says he cooks some fish for everybody. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that's a strong man. I mean, that, that's, that's power. That's might. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was dead, and now he's alive again. And you know what that is for us? It brings us an eternal hope. Think about that with me. Let, me. let me just put it for you like this. Every other place that you put your hope is going to let you down. Think of it with me like this. My wife can be taken away from me. Um, you choose how. I didn't say, how, I didn't say she was going like to run around on me. She, she, my wife can be taken away from me anyway, any way in this world. My daughter is six months old. She's already letting me down, right? I'm banking on her sleeping through the night. Don't happen. She's letting me down. People are going to reject me, guaranteed. Money will not buy satisfaction. There's always something else. There's always something more. Food satisfies you for a couple hours, but the thing is you always get hungry again. Alcohol leaves you with a headache. Fame promises more than it delivers, but really brings aggravation. Cars always get newer. Everything in this world will fail me. I can put my hope in anything, and I can tell you that it's going to let you down because it is a dead hope. So that that brings me to ask you a question this morning. Where is your hope? What's the thing in this world that you are looking for asking to bring you satisfaction? And I can promise you this. If it's anywhere but Jesus, it's going to fail you. But in Christ, we have a living hope. Listen, this morning, I just pray that you would realize our identity is everything. Who you are is everything about you. How you see yourself is everything. Check this out. You should hear this today, and you should feel weight that God loves you. Like there's, I don't understand how you could hear that God chose you before the world began, and he saved you by his mercy, and he gives you a living hope, and that don't put, that don't put deep joy down in your heart. That, you should feel the love of that. I'm asking you this morning, do you feel loved by God in that? But most of the time, what we do is we take this for granted. And the majority of sins and mistakes in your life can be traced back to this one thing. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. Because when you know who you are, you know how to live. And let me tell you, I always put it to you like this. I I talk about family a lot. And so uh, I'll give you a little example from my childhood. Uh, my dad goes to this church, but I'm not talking about him. I don't even know him. Anytime I left the house when I was growing up, I, I got told one thing. You want to tell him what, what it was, yet? Remember who you are. Right? I'm 22 years old, pay my own power bill. Sometimes he comes by the house and says, remember who you are. Like, I'm like, I pay my own bills, man. Right? They, he, anytime growing up, he, he would tell me that. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Because here's what he knew. When you remember who you are, when you know where you come from, you know how you're supposed to live. And guess what? I didn't always stay real true to that, but even when I was doing wrong, I knew who I was and I knew I was doing wrong. Right? Do you know who you are this morning? So that's the identity of exile. We got to go. We got a whole chapter to cover. How about the trials of exile? Let's keep going. After Peter tells us who we are, he tells us, he talks about the trials that we're going to experience. Let's look at verses six and seven. So he tells us who we are, then he talks about the trials that you're going to walk through. So get this Peter starts with our identity. 
And I think there's a reason that he starts with identity. It's because once we know that we have Christ and we have hope that will never die, we can face anything in this world. All right? So we can handle anything when we realize that everything in this world is fleeting, it's going to leave, it's not going to last, but Christ will be there forever. So Peter starts with identity. But what I've noticed a lot in church, and like you can, you, I'm pretty sure this is probably universal, you could probably see this in most churches, is a lot of times we think as God's children, we get a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to suffering, right? We think, oh, well, see, what's happening is if God loves me, if everything, if God is for me, then my life should be good to go from here on out, right? God loves me. God's for me, all right? That's exactly the opposite of what Peter's saying. So Peter is not saying you're wrong. Peter's saying you're wrong, all right? Peter is saying that everything in your life, every trial, every suffering, that God has been doing something and is doing something in it. He gives us a couple of reasons. Look, at, he, the first thing Peter tells us about trials is that they're for our refinement, they're for our holiness, they're for our purity. As you read uh, verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, Right? What Peter is doing there is he is relating trials in our life to fire that purifies gold. So he says trials are for our testing, and as he's comparing it to gold, so basically what he's saying is that most of the time, matter of fact, me and my wife were talking about this this week, and she would say all of the time that whenever you're suffering, whenever you're going through something, and this is hard, that God is doing something in that, that when you come through on the other side, you will know him more and love him more than you did when you went through. It's, and what's going to happen is when you get into suffering, God is going to give you eyes to see things in your life that don't belong. And as you're running through the fire, guess what's going to happen? Those things in your life don't belong. That fire is going to get really hot and you're going to make it, but those things ain't going to last. It's gonna, God's going to burn them away. All too often, man, we're crying about trials and God's putting us through them for our, for our good, for, for, for our holiness. And here's where the truth comes to that. And this, this is, I, I'm, I'm talking to Jenna about this this week. And Jenna lost her dad at a young age. And I was, I was just asking her about some of that and how, how, what she learned through that. And this is what we, this is, I'm going to give her credit. She said, when you're going through hard times, that's when you must be with, con- confronted with the truth of Scripture. And that is that God is more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. I was like, you want to preach Sunday, babe? I don't don't know if we agree with all that, but we might need to let you come and talk. God is more concerned with your eternal destination than he is with your earthly satisfaction. And so here's the thing I'm going to tell you. When you come to a trial, when you come to a hard time in your life, you better be thinking, I love God more than anything else. Because when you come to a trial, if you don't love God more than anything else, you're not going to go through that trial real happy and real joyful. Because you're going to say, I, don't, I love this stuff more than God. God, don't take this sin from me. God, don't take that person from me. I love that. I love that. But when we go through trials, we better be willing to say, God, I love you more than anything else. Burn out what don't belong. So he does it for refinement. He also does it for another reason. He does it for God's glory. Verse, in verse 7, he says, that may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be thinking, how is God glorified through my suffering? And that's a good question. I was thinking through this myself. How does God get glory when I go through hurt? 
God, when my life's hard, why are you getting glory from it? God, that don't seem right. Shouldn't you be for me? Couldn't you get glory and just make my life easy and make everything go good? Wouldn't that be better? Here's how he does it. Because when you're walking through the toughest times of your life, you're very quick, you very quickly realize that you're not strong enough to get through it. It don't matter whether you lose a child or you lose a spouse or you get diagnosed with cancer or you're walking in spiritual warfare, whatever it may be, what you do is very quickly you realize, I can't make it through this on my own. And then what happens is you say, God, I can't do it. And then enters a God who can and in the midst of that, you say, I can't. God enters a situation, and he provides comfort or healing or endurance or satisfaction. And you know what? You say, God, i got to have you because I can't do it on my own. And the rest of the world looks out, and they see you relying on God. They say, God, I can't help God get me through it. And they see God get you through it, and God looks really good to other people when that happens. So in, this, in these situations that we're, not only is God working for, our, for his glory, he's also being, we're also being a witness to the world. Because when it, people see you suffer and they see you say that God is good enough to get me through it, that makes people see a God they want. And I, I just got to encourage you with this. As you walk through life, you're going to suffer. As a Christian, we need to be mindful of how we suffer. All right? Because some people, man, we bemoan that we have life. If we're suffering, you're going to know we're suffering, right? I'm one of these people, right? I mean, God forbid, I stump my toe and it's just like the end of the world, right? But, right, that's how we, that's how we, we act. We suffer and we let everybody know about it. But what you've got to be aware of is, is as you walk through suffering, you're either sending a message to the outside world of my God's not big enough to get me through this or my God's got it. Everything's going to be okay. You're always preaching. So he does it for God's glory. And one cool, look at verse seven. You got it up there? One cool thing about this verse I want y'all guys to see. It says, so the tested genius of your faith, all right, so skip that little part that's hyphened off, may be found to result in glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter writes this and he don't really make clear who's going to get the glory. All right? So does God get glory from our trials or is our faith going to get glory from God's trials? You know what the answer is? Both, right. Yeah, y'all been here a couple times, right? Y'all know how this works. Both. So not only are, is God going to get glory on that last day when we say, God, you are good, you are good. But on the last day, listen, there's going to be, after we've suffered just a little while, after we've gone through the trials, after we have endured faithfully, we know that the Scripture says there's going to come a time when God looks us in our face and says, "What? well done, my good and faithful servant. You have done well. And on that day, we're going to get glory. God's going to take up, Jesus is going to literally share his glory with us. That is a good king. That is a mighty king. And what I'm asking you for is, it, it, you might be here today and you're walking through this hard time. Let, walk in that comfort because that day's coming, right? And you might be here and you, you don't know what God's doing in your life. You might be thinking, man, this has been the hardest season of my life. This has been the hardest time of my life. I can promise you, you can ask me or Jeremy, either one, and we would say the past six months would be the hardest season of our life. And what we know now on the other side of that six months is that God was doing something in it the whole time to either change me or to glorify himself. So be, be, be strong this morning. God's working in the mess. Let me ask you this. Do you realize that in the situation that looked like God was in the least amount of control is when he had the most control? Think about the cross. 
Think about the disciples. The disciples were scared to death because the man that they had invested their everything in had been crucified on the cross. And they say, God, you're not working in this. God, this is out of control. But it was exactly in that three-day period between the cross and the resurrection that God had everything under control. He knew exactly what was going to come. And it might be that that's how you feel this morning. But let me tell you something. Help is on the way. God is still in control. Last thing, uh, moving on. No, not the last thing. I don't want y'all to get excited. Uh, verse 8, test. So he shows us the identity, who we are, and then he shows us we're going to walk through some stuff, and then he shows us the test of an exile. So let me ask y'all something. Anybody know what a litmus test is? So A few people do. Chad went to Georgia Tech. He, knew what, he knows what a litmus test is. Right? All right. How about, uh, how about some of you men? You ever got the voltage testers out and uh, you plugged them up to, to, the, to the outlet to see if there's any uh, voltage running through it, right? Yeah, what's it, going, what's it do? It helps you know whether there's any life coming through that, right? Uh, Jeremy's laughing because he knows I don't use voltage testers. I call somebody else, right? <laughs> uh, so it lets you know whether there's spiritual life flowing through something. And that's, the, that's what Peter's about to give us in verse 8. Peter gives us a test to let us know whether or not there is any spiritual life in us. As a matter of fact, we're going to take this test. In verse 8 it says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. So we're going to take this test. Y'all ready? Yeah, I know y'all come to church to take a test. Here it is. The test to know whether or not you're a Christian is really simple. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Now, see, what happened was exactly what I thought was going to happen. I was going to ask that question, and y'all was going to say, amen, brother. Amen. We in South Georgia, y'all been in churches your whole life. Y'all know, y'all know how this thing goes. Amen. Amen. Do you love Jesus? I love Jesus, right? So I asked that question, and before you even really have time to think about it, you just answer it and move on. Yeah, I love Jesus. I've been going to church my whole life. What you talking about? Of course I love Jesus. But what I want you to know is that everyone in here, if I asked them one-on-one, would say they love Jesus, but the actions of our life are the determinant of whether we love Jesus or whether we just say we love Jesus. Our actions reveal ourselves to be true. So many times our actions say we love ourselves, or our families, or our children, or our spouses, or our jobs more than we love Jesus. That's just the reality. Sometimes the way you live your life says you love other things a lot more. Sometimes the way I live my life says I love things a lot more than I love Jesus. So what I'm asking you is not do you believe in Jesus. I'm asking you this. Do you love Jesus Christ more than anything else in this world? And I, as I think about it, I think about the, the, uh, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus on the road. And what did he say? He said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And then Jesus said, well, sell all your possessions and go give them to the poor, and then you can follow me. And what's he do? He turns around and leaves because he loves money more than he loves Jesus. Or how about, I think about the time where Jesus got up and said, you must love me more than you love your mother or you are not worthy of me. God, my mama? I got to love you more than my mom? That's what he says. He says, you have to love me more than anything else. You might be here today and you're saying, well, Dallas, I don't know. How do I know if I love Jesus? Let me ask you this. Do you long to know Jesus Christ? And when I say long, I mean in your heart, does it burn when you wake up in the morning to say, God, I have to know you more. I have to love you more. I want you, God. Let me ask you another one. Do you long to spend time with Jesus? 
A lot of you say you want to know Jesus, but a lot of you have a hard time opening that Bible and spending 10 minutes and praying 10 minutes, right? Let me tell you something. People who love Jesus love to be people who spend time with Jesus. Do you spend time with Jesus? How about this one? Do you long to please Jesus? Do you long to please Jesus with the way that you live your life? Now, this is a good one. Do you talk about Jesus with such joy that you talk about him with more joy than you talk about your children? That's a, that's a deep one. Because let me, some, you get around some of us, I mean, this has been me the past six months. You get around me, and man, I just want to brag on my kid to you. I swear, I think she has an IQ of 117 right now. Like I just, I'm going to tell you about her. I'm going to tell you how smart she is. Me and Jeremy get together and he starts telling about stuff pacing and we don't really admire what the other kids doing because we're like, well, my kid's better, right? We just talk about these kids and we say, man, they, our kids are awesome. Our kids are awesome. When's the last time we put Jesus up and said, my God is awesome? Because listen, when you love something, you magnify it. You say, you're awesome, God. And I, I got to be honest with you here. I'm sick. I mean, literally nauseous when I think about it. Of living in a culture where with our mouth we honor Jesus, but with our lives we dishonor him. When I think about my own life, I grow nauseous when I look at the stuff in my life. When I say with my lips, God, I love you, but my actions don't match up. I'm confused when I look at people who are Christians. I'm a Christian. I've been coming to church my whole life, but have no desire to grow in a personal relationship with him. Have no desire to spend time with God and his word. Have no desire to evangelize lost people. Yeah, I'm confused. And maybe if you've got answers that can clear that up for me, please, by all means, bring the answers to me because I'd love to know. But I am confused when by a culture that says they love Jesus with their mouth, but they deny him with their actions. So my question for you is still, do you love Jesus? Because you have no reason, church, you have no reason to call yourself a Christian, to think of yourself as an exile in this world unless you love Jesus. So do you love Jesus Christ? It's a simple question. That's the test of everything. Then the last thing is this. Let's move on. Last thing. Biggest section of Scripture we've got just a few seconds. So look at verse 13 through 21. I want, us, I want y'all to see not only we need to see the identity of an exile, not only do we need to see the trials of an exile, not only do we need to see the test of an exile, we need to see the pursuit of an exile. What I say by that is we need to see what we should be living our lives for. So when you wake up in the morning, what are you going after hard? What are you doing with all your might? So Peter's going to give it to us. He gives a long section, but I want us to look at specifically verse 15. Let's look at verse 15 and and we'll go to 19. It says this, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, what? You shall be holy, for I am holy. All right, it goes on. Verse 17 And if you call upon him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, not with things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let me tell you what Peter's saying. Peter's saying as Christians in this strange land, the one thing your focus needs to be on more than anything else is to pursue holiness. 
pursue purity. To get up in the morning and to, to kill sin in your life. Purity is not something we talk a whole lot about anymore. Matter of fact, when you start throwing around terms like purity and holiness, you get accused of being a legalist in most cases. People say, man, you're just being legalistic. You know we're saved by grace. We don't have to pursue purity. Let me tell you something. We don't talk about purity because we've got our own standard of how we think things should be. God's got his standard. And people who don't like to talk about purity are people who don't know what purity is. Let me tell you what purity is. Holiness and purity is when you set your heart to kill a sin in your life and live lives that are fully obedient to God. So holiness is when you set your heart on killing sin and living a life that is fully obedient to Jesus Christ. That's what holiness is. And Peter really just gives us two reasons that we should pursue holiness. Number one, he gives us this reason. He says, pursue, pursue purity to be like God. He says what? Be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. See, when, when we're saved, the Bible says we start this process of sanctification. That's just this big word that means when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside you and gives you new desires so that the same sin that you've always done is not the same sin you keep on doing. We begin to be shaped by God. And you know what? On the other side, you know what we start to look like? We start to look like Jesus. We start to look like our Heavenly Father. And that's what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying, this is why you should pursue purity. Because we want to be like our Savior. In many ways, this is the most natural thing ever. Children want to be like their father. Even more than that, as I got to thinking about this, by association, do you know that you just naturally become who your father or who your mother was? I mean, just by association. Don't even try it. I've seen this in my own marriage. Check this out. There are some times, that I, there are some times where Jenna talks, and I'm like, Nancy, could you give me a break? And then there are times, listen, I'm not joking with you. By association, it happens. There are times when I, when I growing up, listen, my dad, he had some of the, the expressions that were all his own. Nobody else's. All right, one of them, I I'm not, I, I've, I've told him this before. I'm not, he not, I'm not picking on him, all right? When, he, when my dad's making a point, he'll drop his jaw and he lets you know he's serious, all right? That's what he does. When I make a point, I drop my jaw. And let you know I'm serious. And it looks something like this. Right? And my wife will look at me and say, okay, Jet. Because guess what happens? Is by association, you become those who you are with. And if we are the children of God, we should be becoming like God. There is no way around it. If you are not becoming like God, you are not a child of God. A better question is this. Do you long to please your Father in heaven? Not just do you look like Him. Do you long to please Him? Think about this. When you realize just what God's done, with you, done for you, you'll do whatever it takes to please Him. Whatever it takes. It don't matter what the rest of the world thinks, you just want to please God. I heard a story about this. It was a great story. I'm going to share it with you real quick. It was a story of a, of a soccer coach. And I actually heard this from a guy in North Carolina. He's a pastor up there. He said he was coaching soccer when he was right out of college, going in the seminary. And uh, he was coaching his team. He said his team was awesome. 
Like he said, they didn't lose a game all year long. Last game of the season, they come up and there's this player and she was amazing, right? He was coaching boys. She was amazing. He said, like, I don't know if you know a lot about soccer, but a shot on goal is what you want in soccer. You want to get an open shot on goal. And so he said the night this game went on, his boys had just been used to winning. He said this girl had like 50 shots on goal. I mean, she was just kicking it, just wham, 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 right? And they were losing three to one. And so he calls his best player over there, and he says, Jimmy, there's two minutes left in this game. Your job for the next two minutes is to not let her score. You wrap her up. She is yours. That's what he told Jimmy. Jimmy starts to trot off. He says, and Jimmy, and Jimmy turns back and he says, Jimmy, do it legally. Do it legally. So two minutes is winding down. 30 seconds left to go in the game. The girl has another shot on goal and it's just an open shot. She's going to get it. And out of nowhere, this kid comes in like a missile. And I mean, just full Nelson, bam, just tackles this girl. And it, he said, the whole place goes quiet. He said, the parents like, oh, my gosh. He's, he's like, oh, my gosh. And he's like, what is going on? He said, the player gets down, picks her up, brushes her off, have, have a good game, walks back off. The perfect gentleman. He said, and everybody's looking at him. And he says, Jimmy, what are you doing? He said, and Jimmy's eyes sunk. And he came over there and he said, coach, what are you talking about? He said, I told you to take her out legally. And Jimmy said, coach, you told me to take her out illegally. Had a little miscommunication. But get this, that player was willing to do whatever it took to please one person, his coach. He didn't care. He knew that the parents in the stands were going to be furious. He knew that they were going to be upset. He knew that he was probably going to get jumped on the playground for tackling a girl, right? He didn't care. All he wanted to do was please his coach. And when we get saved, something should work inside of us that says, God, all I want to do is please you. God, I want to please you. Last reason for purity. Peter gives two reasons for purity. The next reason is this. We need to remember the price of the cross. It says this. You are ransomed not with perishable things, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says, you want to know why you should pursue purity. Because Jesus Christ, the King of all, was crucified on a cross. He bled on a cross, and he did it to pay the price for your sins. And how can we continue on in sin when the blood of our Savior was spilt to cover our sins? I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But what I am saying is when we look to the cross, we find motivation to say, God, I don't want to sin, and I don't want to displease you. Matter of fact, the words here are, are words that, are, that are, are familiar to a lamb being slaughtered. Look at verse 19. It says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Not only Jesus is like a sacrificial lamb, he was slaughtered on the cross for our sins. And Christian, let me ask you this. Think about it. Picture, picture it. How can we continue on to do the very thing we know that crucified our Jesus? I don't understand it. And I'm going to be honest with you here. I'm going to be uh, transparent with you here. The reality is I am nowhere near where I need to be in purity. In purity. I, I, I am impure. I am a sinner preaching to sinners. I'm not claiming to be perfect. But what I'm telling you is that when I read this verse, there in my heart was a passion to be pure. There was in my heart a passion to say, God, I don't want to do the things that hurt you. And I am desperately concerned about the salvation of anybody who does not have that passion in their heart. 
we can't continue on in sin. The price Jesus paid was too high. As I close today, Christian, you need to remember the Savior. Those are the words that Peter, the Apostle Peter, as his wife was martyred, said to his wife. She was about to be crucified upside down. The next day, uh, Peter would be crucified upside down. He looked to his wife and said, Remember the Savior. Remember the price he paid. And that's what I'm asking you today as Christians. Remember the Savior. As I close, you know, I'm willing to bet, though, that as even we go through all this, I'm willing to bet that there's somebody here, and I'm talking about a personal relationship with Christ, and you don't know what I'm talking about. You've never had a personal relationship with Christ. As I'm talking about your need to be pure, you realize that you're not pure because you're not covered by the blood of Christ. You realize that you're a sinner. And everything you've ever done is on your head right now. You realize that as a sinner, you would die today, and if you died, you would go to hell. And what I want you to do is I want you to listen to me closely. Christ the King was slaughtered on a cross, and he was slaughtered for your forgiveness. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven of all the things you've ever done. God can forgive you of every sin. He can do it by the blood of Jesus. All you have to do this morning is acknowledge your sinfulness before God, place, in your, faith, place your faith in Him to save you, and then repent of your sin. That's, that's as simple as that. And I believe today that hearing a message like Christ down on the cross, there's somebody here who needs, that, who needs that salvation. I believe that with my heart. So what I want to do is I just want to give us a, one quick opportunity here. If you're here today and you realize that Christ was slaughtered for your sins and you say, I want to be born again. I just don't want to make a decision. I want to be born again from deep inside my heart. I want God to do it. If you come and ask, he'll do it. But you need to, you need to say, God, you're my only hope. And if that's you today and you want that salvation, I just want to ask you to do this. Would you just slip up your hand and let us re rejoice with you and celebrate with you? You just say, I, I'm here today and I need to be saved. Is that anybody? No, that's fine. That's fine. Then there's this. For all those of you, you're here today and you're saved. But let me tell you something. Your life don't really look like an exile. Your life looks like the rest of the world. And I'm telling you today that you cannot live like the rest of the world and be a Christian. Maybe today you need to come down here and repent of that. Maybe today you need to come down here and, and get out of that sin. Maybe you're here today and you're going through a trial. And to be honest, the past years for you have been hard. But you can come down here today and you can pray to a God who gives you the strength to endure anything. Maybe you're here today and you just need to come and thank God that you are a chosen, born-again child of God. I'd ask you, would you let God do that in your heart today? Would you let God work in your heart today like that? This altar will be open. I pray that you would be full. The last, the last thing I want to say to you is this. Connect groups help with all of these things. If you're going through a trial, Connect Group is the place for you. If, you're, uh, if you need strength to endure suffering, Connect Group is, is, is the place for you. If you're tempted to love the world more than Jesus, Connect Group is the place for you. If you need some confrontation of the, the own thing that's in your heart and you just want to kill sin and pursue purity, hey, Connect Group is the place for you. And today there's going to be an opportunity for you to get in them. And I'd ask you very seriously to consider those things. Anybody in a green shirt would love to help you out back there. So as I pray, the band's going to come up, and I just, I just want to pray and we'll worship. Dear God, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you so much for what you've done. 
Father God, God, what I realize right now is that I am nothing, God. Before you, I am nothing. God, but I know, dear Lord, that you use your word and the preaching of it for salvation, dear God. So I pray, dear Lord, that you would save somebody today through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that your name would be magnified today. I pray that connect groups would be full today. And I pray that we would all grow to know you and worship you and love you with our whole hearts. Dear God, kill whatever sin is in our hearts. Dear God, give us strength to endure and give us faith to walk like you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.